This week, we bring you the fascinating soulmates, Becca de la Rosa and Mabel Martin. Yes, that really is her name. A pair of Latinas thrive in that space of uncertainty. You know, the one you're feeling right now when you realize the creator's name is also the name of the titular character. My conversation with Becca and Mabel, coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins, absolutely thrilled to talk about everything Mabel. As events in our world ramp up the tension, I love to turn to creators who understand and speak about creating and consuming art in a time of crisis, because there are so many valuable ideas and comforts that can be derived from it. I hope that you're finding the things that give you comfort and hope. This interview was recorded smack at the start of our quarantines here in the U.S. and a little while into Becca and Mabel's quarantine in Ireland. We're going to talk about COVID-19, but we're going to talk about it in a context that I hope gives you some lightness or new ideas. And that's not all we talk about. We indulge in Becca and Mabel's truly heartwarming romance discuss the influence and elements of their ritualistic and folkloric practices and craft in Mabel, and question audience reactions to complex, flawed, marginalized characters. All that and so much more. Are you ready? Thank you both so much for for coming on to Radio Drama Revival. I'm really excited to get to talk to the both of you. (laughs) Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Mabel has been uh, a part of my listening queue for a very long time. It's uh, definitely one of my mainstays. We're glad to hear it. (laughs) We're always happy to hear that. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So um, let's... Let's open with something heartwarming here. So we saw the glorious Twitter thread that you recently posted, <laughs> and the entire uh, <laughs> the entire RDR team was completely enamored. Um, so can you tell us and our audience uh, about how you two met and started working on Mabel together and where it's led to? Absolutely. We actually were pen pals, first of all, and we just really liked each other's writing. And she has previously published some stories and I was sort of more writing online little small things (laughs) in just like sort of random internet corners. And we kind of met through mutual admiration of each other's writing and work and um, decided to become pen pals. Yeah. And then I decided that we had to do a podcast Yeah, because I'm whimsical and I had listened to some and I was like, "Um, we could do this. And yeah, so we started writing, we started planning everything together. We planned everything together from the beginning. And it was it was kind of hard from afar. There was a lot of like, you know, recording in our bathrooms and on our phones. On our phones. And yeah. It was really fun. We had a lot of fun. We started putting it out into the world and people started talking about Mabel and Anna as a pair. We're like, that's odd. Okay. I don't know where they're getting that. That's fine. No. It was very confusing at the yeah. time due to repression. Due to repression and <laughs> stupidity. <laughs> and uh, and we, we were like, okay, that's fine. You know what? People are, people are going to see what they want to see. We eventually met up. We'd known each other for what, like a year and a half? No, it was just over a year. Just over a year when we met up. And, uh, you know, 
<laughs> it was normal. It was totally normal. We just wanted to be around each other and like be close to each other and talk to each other and sleep in the same sleep bed. Sleep in the same bed. <laughs> we're we, like, this is, we're so close. We're like the best of friends. Nice to be best friends with your best friend. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then she left. She was in Ireland by that point. And then she left and I was like, oh, I'm dying. <laughs> There, <laughs> do you care if I take no, no, no. hold of your narrative for a Please. second? Um, she told me this story afterwards. She actually waited a few months after we were married to tell me this. But we talked about the night that I left. Um, it was like, actually, we had gone to the airport at like four o'clock in the morning. And she told me later, she was like, you know, when I came back to the house, I took all of your leftover food and I ate it in like one sitting just so I could have some kind of piece of you like inside me because I felt so hollow. I did do that. <laughs> it was a bleak I thought moment. it was actually like it, it was, but it was bleak. in hindsight, it's quite sweet, you know, yeah. the hindsight of, well, of now we're together, marriage. So yes. We don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> but yeah. The choice of marriage. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so then we're like, oh, we get it. <laughs> this is what's happening we're in love with each other and here is actually something that we didn't add to the twitter thread that we think is very sweet we actually didn't kiss until we were in were we engaged or were we just we were engaged engaged. yeah we were technically engaged yeah yeah and i think that's very old-fashioned it was very old-fashioned stupendously old-fashioned ridiculously (laughs) old-fashioned I'm getting such good Regency vibes from that. That is exactly <laughs> correct. Oh, my favorite. <laughs> I've made her watch so many Regency movies. <laughs> yes. yes <laughs> so the two of you uh, have talked about how you have spent a long time in contemplation about your religious and your magical practices, which are a blend of your Irish and indigenous Mexican backgrounds and rooted in the craft of storytelling. I'd love for you to guide me through some of the core craft and folkloric components that are crucial, if that's something that you feel able to do here. Yeah, sure. Um, So separately, and for me, interestingly, our brujeria initially was rooted in the power of the written and spoken word. And we were drawing from kind of a myriad of of different sources on that but definitely from our backgrounds there's a particular song that you sing from the oh i don't remember yes yes Mm -hmm. um that was really influential in my wife's practice again i'm sorry to speak for you no 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 please Um, that um i found really fascinating in particular and for me it was rooted in the power of also being a girl and being able to reclaim my own narrative through the lens of girlhood and then womanhood that only as an adult was I later to look back and realize, oh, this is because I'm Mexican, (laughs) that I have this perspective, Mm -hmm. the blending of a lot of what most people would consider and maybe even like pathologize as particular kinds of perceptions about the world, ways of looking at the world. In literature, they call it magical realism. But really, if you're Mexican, it's just called being a Mexican. Yeah. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. like you, 
you, a, a huge mood. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm Puerto Rican, so oh yes, you know. so you know, yeah. right? Yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, yeah, and um, and so I would draw from a lot of those sources, and then sort of mash everything together. My father's Mexican. My mother is Irish. So same here. We're the same. We're the same, We're the same actually. Same. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, amazing to me. For yeah. sure. <laughs> so, yeah. So we ended up with very similarly influenced practices, even though they were very, very solitary before yeah. we knew each other. We grew up like 6,000 miles apart. She grew up in Southern California. I grew up in, in Dublin in Ireland from when I was nine years old. It's just interesting how kind of our practices kind of matched up. And and then that in and of itself became sort of a cornerstone of the, the magic and the faith that we have now. The level of repetition that happens in the universe and the concept of when you do something over and over again, you sort of weave it like a groove into the world and it makes a pattern that then becomes easy to follow. And that's really like all storytelling is. Yes, it's like exactly. It's a pattern putting more effort into mm-hmm. weaving the groove. Yeah. That just kind of adds to the magic of your story about coming together. The fact that that you have these such similar backgrounds and that they informed your practices when you were alone to the point where like when you were together, it combined really well. Yeah, we we consider each other. We're, our, we're each other's soulmates. We believe in that. We believe that we were, you know, meant to find each other. Yeah. So it is. It's really cool. It was very strange in the beginning. So we're like, wait, your mom's are, wait, your dad's Mexican. Wait, you also like all this stuff. And we're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Just accept it. Yeah. It's what it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've talked about the, the magical reclamation of, of your own narrative and you've talked about it before in other places as a decolonizing act. Can you tell me more about that? Yes. So, I mean, there's the whole cliche of history is written by the winners, but actually history is written by the conquerors. (laughs) That's really what that means. And so for like the Nahua and Mexica people of Mexico, through which pretty much the vast majority of Mexicans are honestly descended just Mm -hmm. because of how that empire worked. The only information we have about our culture pretty much comes from the Spaniards. And so for me, it is important to look at all histories through the lens of who benefits from these stories, who benefits from the way these stories are told. And for myself, even in the microcosm, I could see that in the way certain things sort of spread out in my own actions where I would do something and because I was being perceived as too angry, you know, or too strange. My actions would be, there would be an inference made of them that was not actually correct. And that even works like in, or to, to quote unquote benefit, like you're so exotic. Yes. So like you're interesting because of that. It can also be a a complimentary or a, you know, a faux complimentary, complimentary with air quotes. Um, And so that's really how I view storytelling. And it's very important for both of us to use our own stories, fictional, semi-fictional, (laughs) metafictional, um, (laughs) to continue that reclamation. 
Yeah, definitely. So how how have your approaches and thoughts about womanhood changed as you've gotten deeper into your practice? That's a really interesting question. I think that our approaches to everything have changed as we've gotten deeper into our practice. We are always making an effort to understand that nothing is the way we know it to be. Nothing is works the way we think it does. Exactly, in the world yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is true of gender, it is true of ethnicity, it is true of things like language, it is true of pretty much everything. And when sorry, I don't mean to No, no, no go ahead. Um when I was younger and I think for my wife this has been her experience as well, there was a real feeling of I am a pillar standing alone against the world and my perspective is unique and it is unshared and only I know the things that I know. And that can be true, but it is also only true in facets. And now for both of us, our perspectives as girls, as women, and as brujas is influenced by the long line of our ancestors. Yes. And we can look back at them and we can see, okay, someone else who shares my blood, who shares the monarch butterfly of my DNA, knows what this experience was like. Yeah. We have this commonality in place because of what we do share. And so there's a more sense of community even when we're on our own, you know? Figuratively and literally, because I think we are the only Mexicans living in Ireland. <laughs> oh, we might be. <laughs> we have one Mexican restaurant and it's, it's, it's not right. It's, it's just not right. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to break off into some uh, one specific question here. Mabel, considering the subject matter of your podcast, what's it like living in a digital space where... Very few people are exactly sure whether you're real or not, or at least what parts of you are real, for whatever values of real we are considering here. Hmm. Um, Personally, I think it's great fun. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, When we first started this, um, my wife, before she was my wife, was like, what level of, you know, sort of, metafictionality persona whatever you want to call it what are are you okay with and I was just like you know what I am all in this is (laughs) fascinating I think this is really great we have pulled from my like old school records and my boarding school experiences and my friends and teachers and parts of my life that I have sort of like part and parceled together in this very cool mishmash of anarchy and anachronism. (laughs) And I think it's great. (laughs) I have a lot of fun with it. To be really frank, my personality in the show is not that dissimilar to my personality in In the reality of the space where we occupy ourselves now. Yes. No, no, you're fine. No, it's true. You're Mm -hmm. a chimera. You're, you're lots of different things. That's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny at least. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoy that liminality that you have between the fiction and then quote unquote, the like real space and the way that that 
door is like really fluid. Um, I think that it really comes across in in the podcast itself. So you've done good work. There. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, <laughs> that is something we're definitely very interested in, and and interested also in furthering as a another method of magic, another yeah. method of reclaiming one's narrative. I think for girls especially. Our first sort of bulwark against misogyny is the ability to romanticize ourselves and our surroundings. Yes. So I think that creates sort of a natural transition into what we're doing now. It can be thought of as a kind of protective camouflage. Yeah. Except I really am the poison dark frog, so <laughs> it's just accurate. <laughs> Well, poison dark frogs are kind of the most interesting frogs. So. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> so since we're talking about like this, this blending of reality, fiction, are they the same thing? Kind of um, the horror that you have in Mabel approaches really slowly in both dreamlike and nightmarish qualities. And it honestly feels like listening to my own horrors and the way they approach me, especially when I'm sleeping. <laughs> So what methods did you use to interweave these, I'll call them horror elements, into everything, into like the lopsided relationship and the way that it moves on and grows into experiences and, of course, into like the, the background and the surroundings? We are, we're both big horror fans. We will watch literally anything in the horror genre. And there's a lot of bad horror out there. <laughs> and horror is, is fundamentally like, it is the most interesting genre because it accesses our deepest, deepest fears. And I really think that for most genre fiction, that's kind of, it's a missed opportunity. So we really wanted to like go as surreal as we could, go as nightmarish as we could, go as like, as interwoven, as you said, with every other aspect of the story. Like there are hor horrific aspects of every single part of life, even the mundane. And the sense of existential dread, my wife is, exceptionally good at evoking that <laughs> existential dread is her forte <laughs> and it exists everywhere and we're just we're very interested in, in bringing that out and exploiting it <laughs> yeah and I think it's really just about your perspective from there was this joke online a while back that was like your dog thinks that like you're a god you're just someone that feeds it and like lives forever and everyone was like, oh, yeah, that's cute. And I was like, yes, it's terrifying. <laughs> I think that's fascinating. <laughs> because we as a species are very limited. And it's interesting for me um, in pulling for material um, for our work to look at and sort of try and piece together and imagine or I guess divine, really. I don't consider it really imagining the perspectives of things like the cellular structure inside your body and the periwinkles that are growing on your balcony that you have to cut back every season and the cobblestones that exist to be stepped on. Like, I think all that is very, very interesting. If we, once again, pulling from our backgrounds mm -hmm. are coming at things from a sort of animist perspective, yeah. then everything has its own essence. And that in and of itself should evoke real terror because once again, it means nothing in the world works the way that we think it does. Exactly. And that's all that body horror is as well. It's something that shouldn't be where it is, something that shouldn't be sentient, something that shouldn't be moving, something that shouldn't be like acting the way that it does. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I love that. <laughs> 
so I'd love I'd love to see hear your perspectives on the presence and the presentation of hope in horror. That's another really interesting question. I we knew well we 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 knew kind of halfway through that we were going to be writing an a lesbian story and as lesbians as lesbians who have seen so much media in which we were just murdered left right yeah. and center we yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> we really made a choice and and knew that it was our our choice and really our only choice to not have that happen in our story to not have this be like another barrier gaze yeah we wanted to ultimately tell a love story and there's horror woven in there there's you know a lot of it a lot of horror but this is a story of Anna and Mabel and their connection and their obsession with one another and their ultimately like all their efforts to be together to understand one another despite everything that they've been through and that is a hopeful message I think that is possible that it's possible to find a connection like that at all yeah and even like Anna's initial behavior because before we knew that we were telling sort of our love story to one another we still knew that the girls were going to make it out alive that there was going to be some kind of resolution um I think even the act of Anna repeatedly trying to call someone who does not respond is ultimately like a hopeful one it is something that only really an optimistic person would do yeah it's true so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how many times have I sat on hold right. and then given up? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I absolutely was going to to also like talk about about this um, the problem of like queer relationships presented in in mainstream media. I love to hear even just like a little bit more about how you challenge and address um, that narrative of like destruction of the self, also not just death through forging connections as a radical anti-oppressive act in Mabel, because Mabel is very much rooted in this throwing off of oppressive change kind of. The very first thing is the fact that we're centering their relationship at all. And that is like, that is fundamental. Their relationship is fundamental. It is, you know, Mabel is the eponymous character. Her absence is the trigger for everything. Her absence is like the trigger for Anna's, whether you want to look at it as like descent into madness or, transcendence of the reality that she's living in and having them be two gay women, two lesbians, having their story be the only one really ultimately that matters is first and foremost, what we wanted to do and what we wanted to, to focus on. Yeah. And I think too, with regards to other media and mainstream media specifically, because Honestly, a lot of fiction podcasts, I think, do really well in this regard. They do, yeah. Um, but mainstream media specifically, even media that I happen to like, has a lot of predatory lesbian yes. tropes of like unhinged lesbians, yes. psycho lesbian. Mm-hmm. And what we wanted to do and what we set out to do once we realized that (laughs) that was because (laughs) since we, you know, since we were and always have been both lesbians, we were always writing from that perspective. I, I, especially for Mabel, because a lot of things when I was a child were so pathologized, I wanted to give room for these women to be 
angry and to get loud and to yell and to act like the traumatized people that they are and then give them space to work on that and then recover and not just condemn them for maybe being a little bit unstable, you know, maybe yelling sometimes and not having the best way of going about things. Because when you are a traumatized person in any kind of relationship, whether it is a friendship or a romantic relationship, you're not always going to like behave to your best self. And Sometimes in media, mainstream media specifically, sometimes, again, that gets taken to the ridiculous degree of like all gays are abusive in some capacity yes. mm-hmm. um, and gay women are predatory specifically. Um, but other times, even when they're sort of like tepid in their treatment of it, there's no room to really recover from these actions or to grow as a character and as a person and so it was important to us even when we thought all they had was a a friendship foundation to show their anger show their trauma and then let them sort of work on that and navigate that and figure out the ways that they could not emulate their oppressors because you cannot ever build something with actions that are fundamentally oppressive or create a hierarchy. Yeah. You're never going to dismantle things that way. Yeah. So. I just want to do finger snaps. <laughs> That's what I'm doing right now. But also in that in that vein of not emulating oppressors, which you are 100% right about, um, I don't think people realize how um, how insidious that is. Right. Yeah. And how it it, it is in everything and you do have to like think about that i've noticed as like a media critic um and i basically live online um (laughs) audiences have been uh, grappling recently with the necessity for nuance in the presentation of marginalized people in their relationships and the necessity for this like messy presentation um that tug of war between like Again, Will Williams mentioned recently in a conversation that I was in, um, don't make all X a villain and don't make all X innocent angels where X is like marginalized person. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so it's like a messy conversation and people are really unwilling to to meet in the middle. So how do you approach the presentation of complex, flawed characters from marginalized backgrounds? Well, for me, one of the things I always try to do is look at the little oppressive kingdom of Catholicism that <laughs> that mm. still reigns <laughs> over my ancestral oh homeland my yeah. and say, now what can I do that's mm-hmm. the opposite of that? Yeah. <laughs> and one of those things is the glorification of suffering. Yes. Um, when we exist at all in the media, it is only through our suffering that we are redeemed as good. We have to die or be hurt or be assaulted or in some capacity. And something that we both were really passionate about when we first started this was like everything they go through is going to have a purpose and it is not going to necessarily make them stronger, is not going to necessarily make them better. It is not going to make them more moral. It is not going to make them paragons of goodness and they are never going to be on a cross. They are never going to be martyred my character and self (laughs) in particular, I actively reject that mentality of self martyrdom specifically. Um, I don't think it is useful or offers anything 
productive for marginalized people at all. Absolutely agree with you. And you find when the narratives are based on just the rhetoric of suffering, it's just tragedy porn. It is. Yes. It's it's titillation. It's same as anything that is any kind of pornography. It is simply for other people's emotional masturbation. (laughs) Yes. Right. Yeah. I dealt with this a lot in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. With like the the disaster porn that right. Yeah. That all of the like reporting places, the mainstream like media, specifically like mainstream journalism, were putting out into the world. I have a lot of very strong opinions about also the way that that was happening on the islands as well. Mm. Right. And how you are correct is how influenced it is by this like oppressive force of Catholicism that has just been become embedded into like our cultures in different ways of course right yeah Mm -hmm. there's a lot of that in in our communities honestly there's a lot of well i'm suffering so i'm doing a good job instead of wait why am i suffering and who is benefiting from my suffering absolutely so that leads me to talk about the elements that still remain and in some cases depending on your own families uh, and and communities the folkloric and fairy tale stories and elements and rituals that remain throughout everything. Um, so I'd love to hear about the those elements or rituals that you've used in Mabel and how they went from your own lives into Mabel. Do you want me to... Yeah. Is it all right? If I, yeah. um, so there are specific episodes in which there are and i hope when people hear this they go back and re-listen to certain Uh things there are specific episodes in which there are hidden like prayers and certain phrases only barely audible that were covered up with like music and and other sort of audio trickery a lot of the spirits that are in the podcast sort of fictionalized um, have titles that were taken from ancient Nahuatl titles or ideas. There is a lot of pulling on our ancestry with regards to the concept of time mm-hmm. um, and its functionality. And there's also just small things littered throughout. There's a lot of mention of eggs, of bundles of twigs. Those are things that are used in like limpias yeah. that we personally use. And so there's always a an association that happens when there's any kind of particular physical thing mm-hmm. that is mentioned like that. We try to keep it done in such a way that it doesn't become distracting to the narrative that if someone doesn't know what we are talking about, they won't be taken out of it. Yeah, But it's there for people who are familiar with things and honestly for ourselves to know where our influences are coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that it's really important for people to make sure that the stories that they're putting out into the world is also connected to themselves. Yes, definitely. And it's not separated from themselves. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. I think it's very important that whatever art an artist produces, that it be in some way honest. Yeah. So, Becca, you've mentioned in previous interviews that you and and your house, well, uh, probably previous housemates by this point, unless you were talking about Mabel, make epic mix CDs. 
um, that contain. <laughs> She's uh, laughing at me. Uh, uh, no, that laughing that at was me. when you were hanging out at the Neutral Milk Hotel. Yes. Oh my, God. <laughs> my wife likes punk music. She doesn't really care for my soft, gentle banjo music <laughs> sung by a single white twink. <laughs> No, sorry, it's true. I, I, I... No, that's that's extremely good. <laughs> Listen, we have we we are incredibly similar in almost every way except for music taste. <laughs> I've had to. I, I've been like, babe, you love me so much. You would come to a Sophie and Stevens concert, wouldn't you? And she's like, I do love you that much. I would go. You know, <laughs> oh my God. I would wear my old ripped jeans and Clash T-shirt, but I would go. Yeah, for you. you and that's a marriage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now that you've given me some great information, I'm going to slightly <laughs> reframe the question that I was going to ask. Um, <laughs> I would love to hear about the influence of both of your music tastes on the written and the audio design for Mabel. Well, a lot of the weird singing in the walls is us as I'm sure it's obvious. We, I, especially I'm, I was, I'm very obsessed with folk music. Um, I have a big collection of ballads <laughs> and I think that they're all very strange and they're all kind of esoteric in their own way. And mm-hmm. a lot of that makes its way into, into earlier episodes, especially there's a lot of like Tam Lin. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of strange mm-hmm. murder ballads. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that, that you're more or you're, you're less acoustic kind of musical sensibilities have certainly helped with like the glitchiness that we want to impart in certain, like more of the like horror. Yes. The brusqueness, the brashness. Mm -hmm. Most of my musical tastes are either late punk, old school punk, old rock or like nineties grunge. So, you know, yeah, I will help by singing Where Did You Sleep Last Night, but only the Nirvana version. <laughs> so. <Right. laughs> and and I, am, I am the sound engineer for the show, but she is the one with the idea. She's like, no, it's got to be grittier and it's got to sound more angry. And I'm like, okay, got it. <laughs> um, and, and in that way, we're like, we're a good team because she knows the sound that she wants and I can sometimes get it to that point. <laughs> No, you do. You do great. She's a real genius with the the sound engineering. I'm not really that good with technology either. So she's got, you know, the computer open and she's got all these buttons. And I'm like, I just want it to sound like someone's mad. So if you could do that, I would appreciate it. But I'm not going to try and learn this particular kind of techno witchcraft. That's extremely good. Um, (laughs) We're going to move into just some like more fun questions that are not directly related to Mabel. One of which uh, came to me when I was reading your bios. Please tell me what kind of fine bones you have in your house. Oh, we have so many fine bones. (laughs) I I love bones. I collect them. I just find them all the time. We have... um, She's the beloved of death. (laughs) (laughs) We have a very beautiful stag skull who watches over us. He Mm. is large and his name is Godfrey. And... He's very good. Extremely good name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have a bunch of uh, always finding fox skeletons and crow skeletons. And we have a couple of skulls that we purchased. And mostly they're just things that we found, things we found on the beach, things we found in the cemetery, things we found in nature and various parts. I like to 
take them home and wash them and give them food and tell them that I love them. Literally, wherever she goes, she will find a bone. Yeah, I will. It's really something to watch. (laughs) (laughs) That's a special magic talent right there. It is. (laughs) Yeah. Have you named the friendly magpies? The magpies? Oh. You know, one time we tried to give a family of corvids names. And they didn't take it so well. Yeah. So we have since stopped trying to name any corvids, lest they start stealing the things that we leave out as offerings in the garden. Yeah. They're tricksters. They don't like to be pinned down. Yeah, that's valid. That's a really good point. (laughs) (laughs) Also, a healthy decision. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, So I'd love to know about a, a folk story that has lived within you since you first learned it. For instance, like mine is the tale of La Llorona, which I mm, experienced yeah. and lived with growing up in Puerto Rico. Yes. Um, and for listeners and audience members who don't know, it's um, it's the story of a, a ghostly woman who wanders down a street crying and for her lost children. And the story goes that she kidnaps people's children after a certain time at night. So that is why you should not let the children out of the house. What about the two of you? Uh, it's not quite a folk story, but I have been, since I was an infant, obsessed with the 12 dancing princesses, the fairy tale of the the princesses whose dancing slippers are mysteriously worn and whose father sends out a decree that anyone who can solve the strange mystery will get, you know, half his kingdom and a very stalwart farmer lad follows them down and they're going down into the underworld. They're dancing with, with the dead, basically. And I am, I like anything where people go down into the underworld. I think that's interesting. <laughs> and I have been obsessed with it since I was a child. I have a tattoo from a book, a picture book of the 12 dancing princesses. I write almost nonstop about it. And it has just like worked into my psyche at this point as part of my personality. Yeah, it has. <laughs> I really think it's cool. <laughs> In fact, the one of the scavenger, uh, stories that we wrote for the lockdown yes. treasure hunt um involves that particular point of view sure does <laughs> um for me it was a lot of things because i could read by the time i was 2 and so i absorbed a lot of things very quickly and my family had a lot of stories one of which was actually la llorona um my abuela, when he was in Mexico, saw her at um, a crossroads. And so that kind of embedded itself into me um, when I was growing up. But also as maybe like a five-year-old, the story of Bluebeard, because the concept of this secret room and this secret key and all the dead sort of waiting there, like the collection of your past sins was very fascinating to me, even if I couldn't quite put into words, you know, why as a child, the idea of there being some rules that you just should not break. And then as a girl, you go and break them anyway, and sort of damn the consequences. Um, (laughs) I always really liked that. Those are wonderful answers. (laughs) I love both of those stories so much. 
I grew to I grew to become like enamored of the twelve dancing princesses when I was older. Um, and but Bluebeard definitely uh, happened when I was when I was younger because my one of my siblings decided it would be a great idea to tell me that story at night oh, when no, I was right. like six. Oh no! <laughs> oh, dear. That doesn't end so well. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I'd love for you to tell our audience about the lockdown treasure and scavenger hunts that you've created so that they can go find it and have things to do. Absolutely. These are, you can find them on our Twitter, um, which is at podcast Mabel or on Tumblr, which is mabelpodcast.tumblr.com. Um, they are fun activities for you and your family and your friend ghosts or whoever to talking rabbit, talking rabbit. Yeah. To (laughs) undertake. Um, the first one is just a secret hidden somewhere on our website that leads to a a unique story. And the second one is a scavenger hunt that you have to undertake in your own house and find a certain list of items and show them to us somehow. And you will receive a certificate proving that you are a member of the aristocracy of Fairy Hill. And uh, we've been getting some incredibly wonderful images from people who have very cool things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Our listeners are, are very cool people. (laughs) They sure are. Yeah. We got sent like a picture of a goat. Yeah. Like these people are awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, we're definitely going to do more, (laughs) do more activities like that because they're fun for us and they're hopefully fun for other people. And we got to stick together. This is a, a weird time. Yeah. They were actually my wife's idea because she was like, I bet a lot of people are sad now. What can they do that maybe would make them happy? And um, thought it was really sweet. Well, thank you. <laughs> so we will also probably be continuing to do things just, again, as a way to form more connections during yeah. this time when maybe people are feeling a little bit isolated. Yeah, a little bit at sea. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think that's really wonderful. Also, I'm roping my boyfriend into the scavenger hunt because he also has goats. Oh, nice. nice. <laughs> that's amazing. We can't wait to see. <laughs> He also has three cats, uh, and they are all the same color palette, just in different patterns. Oh, wow. I would be very interested in seeing pictures of those cats, if at all possible. Mabel loves cats. I, mm-hmm. I, they are messengers of spirits, <laughs> and also perfect. Yes. They absolutely are. <laughs> they sure are. are. <laughs> they are his perfect sons. <laughs> That's as it should be. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so if there's anything else that you would like to talk about um, that you want to make sure that our audience gets to hear, that you'd like to um, make sure it gets put down into audio, um, now is your chance. Um, I can't think I don't of anything, though. No, this anything. has been a really interesting and good talk, and thank you very much. Yeah, really interesting yeah. experience. It was mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah, good. Thank you so much. I am overjoyed that I got to talk to you both. Um, it was a really fun conversation. Yeah, definitely for us as well. And now I have to uh, open my window. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Bye to both of you. And I hope that you remain healthy and well in this chaotic time. Yes, you too. Same to you. To everyone else. Agreed. Definitely. Happy quarantine. (laughs) Happy quarantine. Nice. If you loved this conversation, you can become a patron of Radio Drama Revival and listen to the extended cut, where we talk about the relationship between secrets and metafiction, exoticism, 
and how Becca and Mabel are reconnecting with the land during their quarantine. That's patreon.com slash radiodrama. You can learn more about Mabel at mabelpodcast.com, where they have transcripts, merchandise, and secret messages. You can support Mabel at their Patreon, patreon.com slash mabelpodcast. Other than Patreon, you can also support Radio Drama Revival by buying merch at our shop at radiodramarevival.com slash shop. We've even got perfectly sized mugs for drinking herbal tea by the window and basking in the sun. And now we bring you our moment of will. Hello, listeners. Last episode, I gave you a Gloria Ansaldua poem, and this week I have another for you. Now, this one might seem, initially, a little bit discouraging, but I find it really powerful and really empowering. So I want you to try to think of it through that lens, especially right now. This poem is called Letting Go. Nobody's going to save you. Nobody's going to cut you down, cut the thorns around you. No one's going to storm the castle walls, nor kiss awake your birth, climb down your hair, nor mount you on the white steed. There is no one who will feed the yearning. Face it. You will have to do it. Do it yourself. Again. I see this through a lens of it being very powerful. I hope you do the same. And hey, listener, take care of yourself. Now we will enjoy the end of episode gong, followed by the giggles of tiny mischievous fairies rattling around in your tea cupboard. time for the credits. This episode was recorded in Portland, Oregon, which is the unceded territory of the Chinook Indian Nation, the Cowlitz Indian Tribe, and the Clackamas Tribe. If you would like to support natives getting their land back, the Chinook Indian Nation is currently raising funds for the purchase of their 1851 Tansy Point Treaty Grounds, the only known place where all five tribes and their members were present at one time. You can find the link to their fundraiser in our episode description or embedded in our transcript for this episode. Our theme music is Danger Digadoo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Trishika Rao. Our lead host is David Reinstrom. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.